Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be in God's words. Follow on your own Bibles as I read out loud. It will also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible uh, with you. Hear God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, and on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is a different James than the one who got killed. This is, this is the brother of Jesus. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, and he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we have um, this earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting event where the gospel moves beyond Jews and Jewish relatives, and becomes, uh, goes to the Gentiles for the first time. The gates have flung open, and this is the scene as you were to move through the progression of Acts, is the scene is now set for the gospel to expand in, um, exponentially 
to the rest of the world, to move out of its kind of provinciality around Jerusalem and Judea and move to Rome and to the four corners of the world. And so the gates have been flung open. The decision has been made, has been shown by the Spirit of God that, yes, Gentiles are welcome in to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we pause and we get chapter 12. And you kind of want to ask yourself, why do we have chapter 12? When we see at the end of chapter 11, uh, Paul and Barnabas are sent back to Jerusalem with a gift from the church in Antioch saying, hey, take this to the church in Jerusalem for their care and for provision in the midst of a, um, a devastating famine that is going to come. And then what we see at the end of chapter 12 is Paul and Barnabas are going back to Antioch. And then chapter 13, the first missionary uh, adventure begin- begins. And so one one has to ask, like, come on, Luke, you had set us up well in chapter 10 and 11. The gates were open. The the, the gospel's ready to go forth. What's the deal? Why do we have chapter 12? It seems like an interruption from the the speed and where the direction of the book of of Acts. Well, I think it can be seen. The reason why we have chapter 12 is, is the story. And the story is communicating the power of God and the triumph of the gospel and the guarantee that as they move forward beyond the ranks of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth, that nothing will be able to stop the gospel. To give us just kind of what we're going to see this morning in a nutshell is what we see in chapter 12 is a great reversal. At the beginning of chapter 12, what happens? James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is ruling and reigning and having his way. And at the end of chapter 12, How are things going then? Peter is set free, Herod is dead, and the word of God is multiplying and advancing. There is a great reversal that is going on in chapter 12. And Luke is sharing with us this story to communicate how the gospel is going to continue to advance. And the reason the gospel is going to continue to advance is because there is a Lord and a Savior who sits on a throne And he rules and reigns sovereignly over all things. And no matter what comes in the face of gospel advancement, nothing can stop it. Not the tyrants of this world, as we're going to see, not death, not the powers of this world. And so what what Luke is providing us here as we move into the second half of the book of Acts is he's essentially giving us a halftime speech. As we're, okay, that was a great, good first half, guys. We're all sitting in the locker room. It's, the things are going well. There's some tough things. Now listen, I'm going to give you a speech, and we're going to run out of here. And that is what chapter 12 is for, to communicate the fact that we have a king who sits on a throne, to remind us of what happens in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, the one who died for our sins, who was risen from the dead, rose and has ascended as the king over all the world's. And so what I want to look at this morning, the theme and the proposition is that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel because, and three reasons that we see. And the first is this, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel because the will of Christ the King reigns over death. Now the majority of this narrative is given to the deliverance of Peter. He is delivered from what is certain death. He is waiting execution. We're not exactly sure how James dies. 
uh, either he was beheaded or he was run through with a sword. The Roman's way was to behead you. The Jewish way, they thought that wasn't very dignified to behead you. Although that sounds like a much better way to go to me. They'd run you through, through your stomach and kill you that way. And Peter is undeniably waiting for this sort of execution. And the great core of the story is this. Isn't this so great that Peter was delivered from death? But we forget the first couple of verses where James, poor James, dies. And there is actually a juxtaposition going on here. Poor James, the, 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 the narrative is dominated by this deliverance of Peter. And it's like, poor James, it's like, eh, he's chopped liver. James got beheaded, but yay, Peter's alive. But what I want you to see is the important to remember here is that what God is ordaining both of these events, it is not simply that God and his deliverance of Peter from an execution is part of his plan, and James's beheading was not, but they are both a part of his sovereign plan. That he rules and reigns over how long we are on earth. We sing mingled together here the fact that there is an evil tyrant who puts one of the core men of Jesus' apostles. There was the 12 apostles, but even within that, there was three, James and John, we were called the sons of Zebedee, and Peter. And here it is, James, the brother of John, is the one who's put to death. But this wicked act, this slaughter of a righteous one, takes place not apart from the sovereign will of God, but within his very plan. See, the reality of the second half of Acts is that the gospel is going to go forward. And there's going to be amazing things that we're going to see. And they're going to experience God's power and God's providential deliverance, both what we see in Acts and the apostles are going to experience this. And many of us have experienced that kind of deliverance in our life. But for all the deliverance that we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we're also going to see these times where Paul and other apostles are killed for the faith. For every scene of deliverance, we also have death. We have suffering. We have persecution. And what Luke is reminding us as we move into the second half of Acts and as the gospel advances into the dark regions of this world is he's saying, yes, whether it be by your deliverance or by your death, both ways I am glorified. And through each of these, the gospel is advanced. There will be stories of both. And they are not outside of my hand. And, but what Luke is offering us is in this reminder is a wonderful, he offers us not only this, this plain truth that God holds death and deliverance in his hand, but he also shows a great example of what we should do with that truth. And we find it, of all people, in Peter. What do we see Peter doing? Here Peter is, and he's facing what he thinks is going to be imminent death, most likely the very next day. And what is Peter doing the night before his planned execution? He is sleeping. Now, if you know the history of Peter, this does not fall in line with who he is. Remember Peter? Peter's the one who freaks out in the boat over a storm. He spent his whole life on the oceans and the waves as a fisherman. A storm comes raging through, and he flips his lid. Peter, a, a young servant girl who cannot get him in trouble at all because she can't even be used as a, as a witness in a, in a trial of that day, comes up to him and asks him if he's a Galilean. And that, not even saying, hey, you're one of Jesus' men, but simply says, you're from the region where Jesus is from. And he'll see, he just denies it. A little servant girl scares him. And he denies Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, a little timid, afraid cat Peter, is sleeping the night before his execution. What, is, what Luke is communicating to us here is that whether you face deliverance or death, and you don't necessarily know what God's going to bring in your life, 
But the call upon you as the gospel moves forward is you get to rest. Sometimes that might literally look like sleeping. Now, this is really ironic because I woke up at 3 o'clock this morning and never went back to sleep. I thought, like, God, you have a really great sense of humor. Uh, At 4.30, as I was sitting there, uh, this is ridiculous because of things going on in my mind. But the call here, what Luke is saying, is rest and God's sovereign plan for your life. You don't know what tomorrow holds, so don't worry about it. Christ the King holds tomorrow in his hands. And what I mean here is is rest. Yes, physical rest sometimes. But what I mean primarily is soul rest. It's a soul silence in which all the problems of your life are not just simply running through your head, but you put them to bed and you quiet your heart before the truth that God reigns and rules. And you, tr- you preach that truth to yourself. You see, the Godward life is not just one that says, Lord, deliver me, but the Godward life is also the one that says, even if you don't, I'll rest in your plan for my life. Even if you don't deliver me from this cancer, Even if you don't take this sorrow or this suffering away from me, I will rest in your providential plan. The resting is not because because we don't need God. The resting is there because we desperately need his provision. And so we cry out to him in the truth that he is in charge. This soul rest, this ability to sleep through a storm of life, to quiet the constant nagging in our hearts, to quiet the anxieties about a future that we cannot control, is dependent upon believing that Christ is king, that he reigns and rules, not sometime in the future, but right now. There's a beautiful truth in one of the great um, catechisms of the faith of the Reformation called the Heidelberg Catechism that has this very famous question and answer. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life? Not just life, but what is your comfort also in death? And the answer is this, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And here's the kicker. And so preserves me, That without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. In other words, the truth that Luke is communicating to the readers of this, and even what he's communicating about the truth as the gospel is about to advance, is as the gospel goes forth, they can't kill us unless God lets them. And if we go down, it's as God said, it's your time. And it was no accident. And this is desperately what we need because in our normal daily lives, we don't have this Godward perspective. We don't get to see how God sees things working out. These people who are praying in Acts 12, everything looks really bad. James gets, gets martyred. Peter looks like he's going to be martyred. And even, and even when he gets set free, it's like Peter has to go into exile. He has to escape. This is not all hunky-dory. And from their perspective, they're going, okay, what is God doing? But Luke is communicating us to us from God's perspective, which is that he is in charge of this. This is not outside of his hands. So this is what we would say is this, is that we, we can be assured that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel Because not even death can stop it. Because God holds that in his hands. He has planned that out. The greatest weapon this world has in its attempt to to stop the gospel is death. And Luke, on the eve of the expansion of the gospel going to the Gentiles, said, that ain't no thing. That ain't no thing. God's got that in his control. 
That's the first reason. The second reason that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel is this. It's that the power of Christ the King overwhelms all other powers. All earthly and spiritual powers. Luke is setting up for us here in this passage a juxtaposition between two communities. The world and the church. And they are, they are arrayed against one another. Each wielding a weapon. The first on the side of the authority of Herod and, 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 and the world is the power of the state. And the state holds with it what kind of power? What kind of threat? What kind of, it holds the power of suffering and the sword. The ability to put you to death. On the other side, the church has what? Well, nothing but prayer. The strength of the state, the strength of the world is what? Violence. Right? That's how it begins in verse 1. And Herod with violent hands. That is the power of this world, is physical violence. The strength of the church is what? It's prayer. See, prayer is the only power of the powerless. And that's what the church has. And here is the wonderful truth, that while the church has prayer and the world has Herod in the state, the beautiful truth is this, is that the state is at a mismatch. It can't handle this. It is a complete mismatch. The strength of the world is no match for the power of the church, so much so as we saw at the very beginning, that while everything looks like it should be going the world's way, James is dead, Peter is in prison, Herod is reigning and ruling, at the very end we see that that's been completely reversed. That the deck seems to be stacked up against the church, but all the church has is prayer. But at the very end, it is completely different. Look at the ease of the deliverance of Peter. The ease at which Luke communicates it. That God's power is so much greater than the power of this world that it's, it's, it's nothing that Peter could be set free. What Peter is under, Luke goes out of his way to communicate that Peter is under maximum, maximum security type of guard. And we see that in, actual, in actuality, the way Luke communicates in this text is, is really kind of funny. There's a lot of humor in this text. Not just the whole bit about like Peter being left out in the cold by Rhoda and the other people. But we see even the way Peter is released from jail. The angel shows up. Angel, this great glorious light, enters into the prison, and Peter still stays asleep. Now, if you read other texts in the scriptures where an angel shows up, what do people start doing? They freak out. I mean, this is kind of a big light usually that shows up. But not only does the, does the angel just show up and nobody seems to notice, but Peter keeps uh, sleeping, and the angel has to prod him. It doesn't say that he kind of gently shakes Peter. It essentially has to slap Peter around. And then Peter is in such delirium that he has to give him three very basic instructions. Hey, Peter, I'm letting you out. So why don't you go ahead and put your clothes on? Yes, your shoes too, Peter. Oh, and don't you want that cloak over there? And then he leads him out past not one, not two, but three sets of gates. And then in verse 11, we see it's what is meant to be humorous as Luke communicates it. We see that Peter says this, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Suddenly, Peter becomes Captain Obvious. In other words, Luke is saying that this is no thing for God to deliver somebody that he loves from the hands of the powers of this world. So much so that Luke will say, let's talk about it in jest. So Luke is saying that the gospel advance, even when the world is stacked up against you, when the deck is stacked against you, because even in a place of insecurity and even a place of threat and weakness, that in that place, we saw the power of Christ the King. We have access to him, how? Through prayer. 
And so what is the clear call that Luke is trying to communicate to the believers as the gospel is about to advance into the unknown parts? Pray. You better be praying. This is how it's going to go forward. And he says, we pray because we are in a battle and we are in a war. That is clearly what he's communicating in chapter 12, that there are two different kingdoms that are arrayed against one another. And this is exactly what Paul communicates later on in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. And what we are to fight, the means by which we fight the kingdoms of this world, is not through violence. This is something we've gotten wrong historically in the church. This is probably what went wrong with the Crusades. We're going to advance the kingdom of God by doing what? By violence. That is using man's wisdom. Jesus says this to Peter. Peter, Jesus is being arrested the night of his, of his uh, trial, and the night before his death. Peter takes out what? A sword and lops up a guy's, uh, a guy's ear. And, and Jesus says, if you take up the sword, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll continue to live forever. We are in a spiritual battle, and therefore we use the spiritual swords that are at our disposal. John Piper puts it this way, in the importance of prayer in our mission and in the war that we're in, he says this, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church. As it advances against the power of darkness and unbelief, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. And so what Luke is saying is this, we are about to enter into a battle, a battle of darkness, of spiritual kingdoms, and we better do that battle on our knees. And it also articulates this lesson, that it is this, it is prayer that undergirds the power of missions. That it is prayer that undergirds the power of the church. That if we are to advance, and it's why we pray for BBC this week, not simply, we can make all of our plans and nothing good will happen. But we pray asking for the Holy Spirit of God to go forth because we have an objective being that we pray to, and his name is Jesus, and he is king and he reigns over all, all, the, all the worlds. Samuel Chadwick, who, the, who was a Methodist minister in northern uh, England at the turn of the 20th century, said this. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. In your prayer, prayer is powerful because in your prayer, you are inherently saying that our mission success is not based on our ability as we go out. Mission success is based on the power of the king. And you might notice here, as a great word of encouragement for us, is your prayer doesn't even have to be that good. You know what's so ironic and what's so wonderful about the thing when Peter goes to, to the house where they're all praying? They're all gathered together. These super spiritual Christians, they're praying all night long for Peter. Lord, deliver Peter. And Peter shows up and Rhoda says, Peter's there. And what do they say? You girl be crazy. And they say, it's got to be Peter's angel. Now, if they're saying it's Peter's angel, what's the Jewish belief? He's dead. They're praying for Peter to be delivered. Peter shows up and they go, yeah, he must be dead. 
What, I'm, what I want you to see here is they're praying for Peter to be delivered, and they don't even believe that God will answer their prayers. And yet God does it anyways. Why? Because the, obje- the object of our prayers is the same thing with your faith. The object, it is not in the power and the purity and the faithfulness of your prayers. It's in the object of your prayers. It's the one to whom you pray. So nothing will stop the advance of the gospel. First, because God reigns over death. Christ reigns over death. And also because he, he's so much greater than all the powers of this world. But the third, the third reason why nothing will stop the advance of the gospel is this. It's because the glory of Christ the King strikes down all tyrants. Just as there is a showdown between the church and the state here in chapter 12, there is a showdown here between two kings, King Jesus and a king known as Herod. And this, this showdown has been coming for a while. If you know the history, there, there's a whole bunch of Herods in, in the gospel accounts and in the New Testament. There are actually five various uh, Herods that are mentioned uh, this one here in Acts chapter 12 is who is known as Herod, the Ag- Herod Agrippa I. There's, we're going to meet Herod Agrippa II later on in Acts, and as Paul will share the gospel to him. But Herod Agrippa I, his grandfather was a man named Herod the Great. He was the one who was uh, king of Israel when Jesus was born. And what did he have done because he heard about this Christ, this Messiah who was uh, prophesied to come into the world, this king of the Jews who was coming into Israel? Well, he had all the babies, three and under, slaughtered. Nice dude. That's King, King Herod, trying to stand in the way of God's plan. Then there was uh, um, Herod uh, Agrippa's father was a guy named Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. And then he was also the Herod who was superintended um, Christ's trial. So we have Herod Antipas, and now we have Herod Agrippa. And he gets right in on the family business. Staying in the way of God's redemptive plan in this world. Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't even necessarily a full Jew. And, and he was very insecure of the fact that he wasn't very Jewish. And so he tried to take on all the Jewish traditions and please the Jews as best as he could. And so he was very politically savvy. And so if there was anything that would make the Jews happy, he would do it. Like, for example, killing off the Christians. And so that's what he begins to do. And what we see in verse 22 is here he is reveling in his great glory. We pick up there, and we remind you of what happens. And the people were shouting to Herod. And they said, the voice of a god, if not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here is Herod in all of his pomp and circumstances. All the glory and praise he can squeeze out of those in his charge. And at the pinnacle of his reign, and it's at that moment, at the height of his glory, he gets cut down or eaten, eaten up. Now, most likely, he literally had worms. Right? This wasn't this probably most likely. Very often, I mean, it could have been a miracle. It could have been God just said, all right, worms, boom. But often, most often, God uses through ordinary, works through ordinary means. Herod probably, as is often known in the third world, you get worms. And he probably literally had worms that were causing him some significant trouble. In fact, we see the same account. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian and one of the great histories of antiquity, writes about this exact account, about how Herod dies. But what I want you to see here in this, and there is an overarching biblical truth that rises above what we can get over the worms thing. And there is an overarching biblical truth that rises above the whole account, and it's this. 
is that God's ultimate goal in this world is his own glory, and he will not give up glory to any man. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. And there is a truth, this truth that God's ultimate goal is his own glory is critical in relation to this text in two ways. First, because if God's ultimate glory is his, or goal is his own glory, he destroys the supposed glory of this world's kings. Their glory is, is rotten compared to his. David says this, that God laughs at the face of kings in this world. He says in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, it says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But David says this, He who sits on the, th- on the throne in heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6, the psalmist brings the same idea back up again. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. And then at the end of all things, at Revelation chapter 17, at the end of the world when God comes to judge, at the very end it says the earth, all kings are arrayed against Jesus. But then it says this in Revelation 17, verse 14, that they will make war on the Lamb. And the lamb, though, will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called faithful and chosen and called. Throughout the scriptures, God has this tendency to take down the mighty and the glorious of this world. He does it to Pharaoh, remember? Pharaoh is the great ruler of the entire world, and he squishes Pharaoh. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, how he taunts Pharaoh with with the various um, plagues. That each of the plagues were a direct confrontation with one of the various gods of Egypt and how he turned him and said, oh, you're gods. Oh, this god, let's turn it around and let me destroy you through it. Then we see Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar who won't give glory to God either? And so what happens to him? God turns him into a beast to wander in the field for a couple of years until Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. You want to see something like it? Go watch Emperor's New Groove. It's where it gets the idea of this ancient story. And even within history, outside of biblical history, but just within the history of man, God has this ironic sense of humor. For example, Voltaire, who was an agnostic uh, philosopher, he just tried to um, destroy the church through, through ridicule and through his philosophy, and he predicted that within 50 years of his lifetime that no one would even remember the, day, the name of Jesus. Well, God, is in his infinite sense of humor, 50 years after that, has Geneva, the Geneva Bible Society running off thousands upon thousands of Bibles in an office, which lo and behold, wouldn't you know, was in Voltaire's house. God has such a great sense of humor. He has such a great way of communicating that he is king and he is glorious and he will not let anybody steal from his glory. But I also want to see you to see this as it comes, relates to this text is because God's ultimate goal is his glory. We are assured of success in taking the word of God to the ends of the earth. Habakkuk 2.14 is this beautiful passage in which God makes this promise. He says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And in Revelation, we see this beautiful scene that in heaven, there is no more need for the sun. Why? Because the glory of the Lord will function as the sun. It will light up everything. 
And the promise is that the glory of God will be known throughout the world, and the means by which God's glory is known through the world is how? Through the word of the gospel being proclaimed to the nations. What's Luke setting us up for here in Acts? The glory of the Lord going forth through the proclamation of the word. And who has been given the mission of the gospel and the proclamation of the word? We have. You and me. This is our mission. And he's saying, listen, I'm guaranteeing you because this is based on my love for my glory to be known to the ends of the earth. And ain't nothing going to stop the word going forward. And he actually stamps this at the end of chapter 12, right? You're about to go do missions. Let me just give you a promise. The word is going to go out, and it's going to multiply, and there ain't nothing that's going to stop it. Everything else comes and goes, but the word of God, which gives glory to God, is unstoppable in its advance. In fact, you know what? I start each week after we reread God's word. I'm actually quoting when I say that whole grass withered and flower fades thing. That's actually for a verse from the Bible. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 7 and 8, where it says this, the grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people, like kings, are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will stand forever. It ain't no thing. There's nothing can stand and then stop the word of God. Luke is setting us up as we enter the second half of this book. And so what's, what's the call here? Well, Luke, for one, is, is saying, listen... <laughs> Listen, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how God's glory is going to go to the ends of the earth, and he's going to tell us the second half of Acts. There's nothing that stops it. By the time we get to the end of Acts, the gospel has gone to the end of the known world at that time. But the message and the call for us is inherent. Get on board. Go forth and follow him. Because this is a, this is a freight train that nothing's going to stop and it's a freight train that gives glory to God. And this is a mission in which you will have your promised success. We are to be glory givers. And the worst thing that you can do with your life is waste your life on your precious comforts. The means by which we become glory robbers like Herod is to use the life that God is meant to say, would you proclaim my glory to the nations both in word and deed and to say, you know what? No, it's going to be all about my comforts. May it never be said of us but that we would lay our lives down to say, I want to make the glory of Jesus Christ known to all the earth. One last point as we come to a close this morning, or just one last thought, a promise or an assurance that undergirds all these things, all these points. How do we know that Jesus rules over death? How do we know that Jesus has great, greater power than the powers of this world? How do we know that, that he is worthy of all glory? There was a phrase at the beginning of chapter 12 that historically roots what goes on in chapter 12. It says that this whole deliverance of Peter happens during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that Peter is to die the day after Passover. Now, what is that a reflection of? What is, the, what is the point, what is the purpose of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Israelite history? It points back to when God did another deliverance. He wasn't just delivering one man, Peter, out of jail, but he delivered a whole people called Israel as he delivered them out of Egypt. And he did throw through something called the Passover where they spread the blood of the lamb, and so they avoided death. They were cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And then they were taken out, and they ate what as they went out, as they went through the Red Sea, and as they moved towards the Promised Land, they ate unleavened bread. And that is what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. And it begins with Passover. 
But it is not simply just pointing back to the Passover of old and the provision and the deliverance of Israel. It's pointing back to a more prominent one. See, when was Jesus crucified? Passover. When was he resurrected? During the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, the guarantee that death has been defeated is that Christ rose. The guarantee that all other spiritual powers cannot defeat us or stop us or stop the advance of the gospel is that all powers stood in his way and they were crushed. It says that Jesus made a mockery of them on the cross. And what shows us that God is glorious, this is a king who is worthy of our worship, is the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It says he is worthy of all praise. That's the guarantee. The guarantee that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel, not death, not spiritual powers, and not the tyrants of this age. May we get on board. Let's pray. Lord, I think of a, of a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress. You're a bulwark never failing. You're strong. You're a deliverer. And God, we are, we are I feel like so often we are a people, a, a people like Peter pre-Pentecost. A, Peter, a people cowering in the boats and afraid of the little girls. Lord, I, Lord Jesus, I pray that the truth of the gospel, the truth of what you have guaranteed for us and what you have won for us in Jesus, through his death and resurrection and ascension, would empower us, would motivate us to go forth. Lord, I pray specifically this, this week that as um, we gather to serve and care for little ones in this community, that, Lord, um, we would not be afraid that teachers at VBS would communicate the gospel, that, Lord, we would not be afraid of what the world thinks of us, but, Lord, we would want to serve you, our great and perfect king. And, Lord, I pray that as we go out, Lord, I even pray for, for Christy and for Jennifer, those who have put so much time into this, that they would not fear. But, Lord, they would rest on the assurance and the promise that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel, not bad weather, not mean neighbors, not timid volunteers, not sickness, not the attempts of the devil, but Lord, whether this week fails in our minds or it's a success, that Lord, it's merely a stepping stone of the advance of the good news of, the, of King Jesus who reigns over all things. And so with that assurance, God, we go forth to proclaim the glory of your name, the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.